guest double feature today on Breitbart News Daily. Let's start off with Dr. Uh, Carol Swain. She is the person who the president of Harvard stole from. Stole from as she plagiarized in her Ph.D. thesis, among other articles as well. Uh, Dr. Carol Swain is was a high school dropout who earned her way to the top on her own merit. And uh, she says some, uh, she has some choice words for Claudine Gay, which, uh, well, you can hear for yourself. go right to our next guest we know the background of the story by now MIT Harvard and Penn their presidents were in Congress the other day and they just beclowned themselves to say the least the University of uh, Pennsylvania's president has resigned and there have been calls of course to have the Harvard president resign as well she has not but now we just broke yesterday from the great Chris Rufo that she is a plagiarist her PhD thesis is just complete paragraphs lifted from different people without citation. Uh, any student would be uh, severely punished, if not dismissed from the university, for this level of uh, plagiarism. And uh, she has not spoken up about it yet. And one of the people that she plagiarized, one of the people that she stole from, that's what this is, this is theft, is Dr. Carol Swain, former professor at Princeton and Vanderbilt. Her newest book, among many, is the adversity of diversity. Dr. Swain, how are you today? I am doing great. Wonderful to talk to you again. Um, before we get to this story, why did why was there a student petition to get you fired from Vanderbilt back in 2017? What happened there? Well, that petition uh, had many different forms. It, it started off uh, to have me uh, suspended because I was a tenured professor. I couldn't be fired, and then they wanted me to go through uh, mandatory sensitivity training. It had five different uh, punishments that that they wanted, but these were not Vanderbilt students. It was part of a national movement uh, that targeted about five conservative professors across the country, and we were all tenured full professors. So this was the left, and it had to do, uh, for me, I was targeted because I wrote an opinion piece January 15th, 2015, criticizing Islam after the Charlet Hebdo attack in Paris where the uh, cartoonists were slain for, um, for mocking the, the prophet. How dare you? So it was about my free speech, and there was a protest, and it even went back further because at Vanderbilt, I had been the advisor to Christian student groups, and I was doing Fox interviews, and the university imposed a rule that student organizations could not have faith statements such as a belief, you know, in any kind of deity or uh, conduct. And so for the Christian religion, to be a Christian, you have to affirm a belief in, in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And you also are expected to live by certain uh, biblical uh, uh, lifestyles. Uh, the university... Uh, imposed a policy that resulted in about 15 Christian groups 
having to lose that student recognition. And I was in the heat of that battle. That started in 2011. It was over by 2013. We fought it tooth and nail, had members of Congress helping us. And then I wrote the opinion piece and it created a firestorm. I've always been a provocative thinker uh, and writer, but this time I knew the day after it was published that my career as a faculty member was over. Amazing. And keep in mind, this is at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, buckle of the Bible Belt, and uh, you still have to fight that battle even there. And when you were at Princeton, and I took, go ahead. Yeah, I was a, I was a full, full professor at Vanderbilt, tenured at Princeton. And when I left Vanderbilt in 2017, I took early retirement. The university did not force me out, but I felt that I could not be my best self in an environment where I did not feel respected. I say all this because you've seen clearly, you've lived what the universities have become. Can you describe what it's like for the rest of us and why it matters? I can. I can tell you that the standards that I had to meet to get tenure at Princeton, the Ivy League standard at that time was that you had to have a path-breaking book. It was a requirement, not a series of articles, but it had to be a book, and it had to be path-breaking. And my first book, uh, you know, had a, it was published by Harvard University Press, and it won three national prizes. It was uh, cited by numerous lower court decisions, and also by the U.S. Supreme Court. And it was a path-breaking book in the area of representation, in particular minority representation. And the book, um, it, you know, it sort of laid, laid an agenda. And, and I discovered yesterday, because I had not followed her career, that Claudine Gay's research was all in that area where I was the path-breaker, and she has a site here, a site there. But I think that if she was going to engage my work, that she should have um, said whose work she was engaging. And so I'm not accusing her of plagiarism of, of my uh, work in her articles. I'm accusing her of ignoring the person who wrote the path-breaking book that she was trying to uh, extend the research of. And I don't know if you followed that there are articles now, they have investigated her work, and four of her articles plagiarized other faculty members, including her colleagues. From all indications, she was always a fraud. Students would be kicked out of school for this, right? She should resign. At first, you know, I didn't, I thought, okay, it was just a dissertation and maybe she forgot to put quotation marks. That was sloppy, but maybe, you know, she, so I was willing to give her the benefit of a doubt. But when I saw that she, I mean, I was, I, I, it was not just one thing. It's a whole career pattern and it's not just me. There are other people that she plagiarized, and said she is an embarrassment. And she was advanced because of her pedigree. She went to the right schools. And uh, looks the right way, right? Well, yes, of course. But I'm so- telling you, like, she had a very elite education, and uh, the left created her. So they bear some responsibility for all of this because mm-hmm. they should have caught the plagiarism some of her own colleagues were plagiarized. Fraud's a strong word, Dr. Swain. Well, she's a fraud because it started with her dissertation. And I can tell you that 
I was a professor when she came on the scene as a student, and I heard all these things about this hotshot uh, uh, woman and student and just, you know, oh, really? her, her work. She was, she was known. She was known, just like I was known. She was known, and she was going to be, uh, uh, I guess, the replacement for me because I was a hotshot until I started criticizing affirmative action, and then gradually I fell out of favor within uh, among the elites. Even though I was a Democrat, I fell out of favor. But she was a new uh, thing, and she did quantitative methods, and my work has always been qualitative. Like, I, I've not, that's not been my thing. And so she was what uh, political science and academia wanted. They created her. Hmm. What do you mean you fell out of favor? What did that feel like and look like? Well, my first book won all those prizes, and I received signing bonuses when I started my career. I was highly sought after with uh, job offers. In the mid-1990s, there was a big debate about affirmative action. And the two presidents, former presidents of Harvard and Princeton, William Bowen, Princeton, Derek Bach, Harvard, they wrote a book called The Shape of the River. And all the elites came together to defend race-based affirmative action. And they argued that you would not have black leaders uh, and that we needed black leaders unless you kept racial preferences. And at the time, I was doing research on affirmative action, and I was so excited uh, because I had data that showed that the American people, uh, you know, they supported helping those that were disadvantaged, but that affirmative action needed to be race neutral and I would argue means tested. So that was my argument that it needs to be race neutral. And uh, and so it was against racial preferences for one group. And it, what it was like was I became marginalized. Things changed for me once I was not saying what was expected. And then I come from a non-traditional background. I was a high school dropout. I started at a community college, but I excelled in my career, even as an undergraduate working full time, I excelled. And so I was able to get my foot in the door. But once I got my foot in the door, I saw what goes on behind the closed doors. And affirmative action doesn't operate the way uh, the left, I'm talking about the rank and file blacks think it operates. I saw plenty of discrimination where uh, people were chosen because of their pedigree, like Claudine Gay. Others who were more qualified were overlooked because they didn't have the right pedigree. Mm. So how does someone like Claudine Gay rise to the top? I mean, people needed her. They created her. And I believe that they share some of the responsibility because she went to uh, an elite uh, private school as an undergraduate. And, you know, she may have been smart, but they allowed her that plagiarism probably started in high school or middle school, and it continued throughout her career. And people just continued to rally around her and promote her. And some of the faculty are still protecting her. And I'm not sure if they know about what was released uh, yesterday afternoon, that it was not just the dissertation, but it was also articles, her research. I don't see how they can not act and I hope she just decides to resign because that would be the cleanest way to do it. 
Is she a woke activist who's on a mission? Of course she is. Of course she is. <laughs> and the people that she's protected are woke activists. And when I wrote my book, The Adversity of Diversity, I mean, she's the poster child. The Biden administration is full of poster children. And I can tell you that when I went through college and, and took my faculty positions, there were open doors for talented. I'm focusing on talented, talented minorities. You could get your foot in the door, but you had to do the work. You had to prove yourself. And when I got tenure at Princeton, it had been almost uh, 10 years before anyone in the politics department or the Woodrow Wilson School, any black person had gotten tenure uh, because they were not going to lower their standards mm -hmm. for her that research agenda that she has, even if she had not plagiarized those articles, they would not have been enough to get tenure during the time that I was tenured. And so what happened after Bowen and Bach wrote The Shape of the River and all the elites came together, they lowered the standards for racial and ethnic minorities across the board. But also we had critical race theory and uh, the DEI beginning to uh, infect, and now it has covered the whole university, but things were changing. They had an agenda, and uh, using black people to advance their goals, that's what progressives do. That's part of the neo-Marxist strategy for bringing down America, as far as I'm concerned, and they have taken over the Ivy League. In fact, an Ivy League degree isn't worth the paper that it's printed on, and we need to stop... Um, going there first for our leaders. We need mm -hmm. to go to places that have higher standards that are not the Ivy League. Yeah, 91% of Yale students get A's in their courses. Uh, so and 89% the of Harvard students get yeah. A's. So the alternative is, is she a woke activist on a mission, or is she just a career bureaucrat who's going along getting to get along, saying the things that it takes for her to get a nice, cushy job? The important thing is that among the uh, progressives, they have an agenda, and all you have to do is follow uh, the agenda. And it's white progressives that are the ones that outline the agenda. And if you're a black person and you want to be advanced, all you have to do is mouth whatever they tell you to mouth. Mm. Look at uh, how far people have gone with so little. Look at Ibram uh, uh, Kendi, and I can name some other people in academia that are black, they're not, they have gotten awards. Some of them have distinguished chairs. But if you actually look at their uh, research and their records, it's as thin as, as ice. No, I mean, ice is not always thin, but it's pretty thin. <laughs> uh, that must, for someone who came from where you came from and worked so hard to get where you were, that must. I know. And you know something? I, I've gone through the range of emotions. First, I wanted to wait and get more information. So I didn't pounce when I immediately heard, heard about it. But then. Yesterday, I read uh, some of her articles, and I skimmed some, and then I, I was kind of upset because I felt like her whole career was built around uh, the, the seminal publication that, um, that I, you know, my research, but she didn't adequately acknowledge me. I'm not saying she plagiarized, but when you're building on someone's work, you uh, usually uh, affirm it or refute it. But you put it out there, and in academia, our status depends on citations. So if you have someone that's working in your area 
and they're not citing your work yet they they are gener- they're doing their research in that area they're building on things that you said then that harms you and so she had all of these articles that got approved by reviewers and by her committee but I did not feel that she gave adequate uh, recognition of where the ideas came from for her entire research agenda. And I would argue that Black Faces, Black Interests, the representation of African-Americans in Congress, published in 1993, updated in 95 and 2006, that was, uh, that's the book that she uh, plagiarized from as a student. She was well aware of my research and then she starts working in the same area, and uh, and I'm barely cited in her papers. You should be the she president should. of Harvard, Dr. Swain. I have no interest in uh, being the president of any of those schools because they're full of uh, snakes. I believe that if we want to change our colleges and universities, it's going to take a change of leadership but a change of values, and the trustees and various people – who are funding institutions. I'm glad they're paying attention to the anti-Semitism. But if they want to save the Ivy League and if they want to save American education, they need to get some of those agenda-driven progressives out of those positions and bring in classical liberals, not conservatives, classical liberals, people who believe in free speech and believe the university uh, should be a marketplace for ideas and believe that education takes place in an environment where you have opposing views, where there are people challenging one another of equal status, that is not taking place. And the whole idea that Claudine Gay would not have resigned by now, if she were a white male or even a white female caught in the scandal that she's caught in, they would be gone by now. You speak. You talk about freedom of speech, and uh, you know, talking about controversial things. Uh, what about we should genocide the Jews? Isn't that freedom of speech, Doctor Swain? What would you have said to those students if you were in charge? I mean, that's hate speech. And if they were black students and a group of white students surrounded them and uh, and and threatened to kill them or said they should be dead, all of those students would have been suspended. In some cases, police would have been called. It's such a double standard, and I'm glad that the American people are standing up to it. Members of Congress are standing up to it. Donors are standing up to it. If it were me, that nonsense would not have been taking place on colleges and universities, the pandering, uh, all of the things that have been taking place that have weakened American education. All we need is one or two college presidents to stand up and act like adults uh, to earn those high salaries, those multi-million dollar salaries, then I believe we could uh, bring American education back into line. Uh, we are disgraced across the world, and it's because pretty much the uh, inmates run the prison. When you have freshmen that are straight out of um, you know, high school or wherever they went, and they're the ones that are sort of dictating the environment on campus, there's something terribly wrong. And the DEI that's taking place on college campuses as well as in some corporations, clear violations of the civil rights laws as well as the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution, it should not be tolerated. And one reason why 
college tuitions are so high is that they have such a bureaucracy of DEI personnel. University of Michigan, uh, last year they had 173 DEI offices, one of the huge, largest departments, uh, a department that's bigger than history and bigger than other fields. I mean, this is not something that is sustainable. It's not adding any value. It's creating conflict. We need to reverse course. Why does all this matter to our country and to the truck driver who's listening down the, driving down the street right now? It matters because we're paying for it. The colleges and universities rake in billions of dollars from us, even while they're getting billions of dollars from uh, foreign nations that may be hostile to us. And so we are paying for it. And in some states, they're being subsidized by the federal government as well as uh, the state budget. So we are paying for uh, institutions that are very destructive. They turn out people who hate America. And we shouldn't be asked to subsidize uh, the destruction of our own country. And some of these people are bent on destroying America. What's your advice to parents, Dr. Swain, especially those of college-aged kids? I think that they need to think very seriously about if that child needs a college education and if they do, where they want to send them. And they should not get excited and thrilled if their child gets admitted to the Ivy League because that could be the beginning of the destruction of your child. And why should you uh, subsidize what is not an education just so that you can have the Ivy League um, seal of approval, because we know that the Ivy League brand has declined to the point that it, it does not have clear value. And I think that we need to catch up with that and not assume that the right thing to do is just to continue sending our kids to college. But I also know that uh, the surveys are showing that fewer young people and fewer parents believe that a college education is a good investment. It's not a good investment right now. And I'm aware of some people, uh, and I've met some people, who are taking the money they saved up for college, and they're giving their child an option. Do you want to go to college, or do you want to use this money to start a business? And I think that that's a good idea, because the college degree is overvalued. Uh, it teaches um, hatred of America in some cases, and it doesn't matter which field you go into, all of the fields, including medicine and science, are now woke. Yep. The critical race theory has uh, been able to permeate every field, every department. Vanderbilt, $60,000 a year, Dr. Swain. Um, my last question for you. How do white progressives, you use the word use, use black people? Oh, I mean, look at the uh, Trump <laughs> trials. Uh, they they use black people to get away with things that white people wouldn't be able to do. Uh, and I think about doing the elections, when, when we talk about voter fraud, if the voter fraud, if someone is black and they engaged in it, it's not likely to be the same uh, penalty uh, that they would receive if they were white. And I think that in areas that involve free speech, uh, black people and and Hispanic people and, and women and uh, in some cases they're able to say and do things that the average person wouldn't get away with. Mm -hmm. And I retract women in the sense that 
there's clearly a double standard that white men and women are not able to get away with the uh, same types of actions as racial and ethnic minorities. And I believe if we want a strong America, we have to hold everyone to the same standard. Uh, Look at the criminal justice uh, area and the crime that's out of control and the fact that you have George Soros prosecutors that are releasing violent people back on the streets. And many of these violent people are black or, or Hispanic, and that's not helping America. But I believe that progressives don't care about crime. They don't care about the LGBTQ community, because if they did, they would not be pushing the transgenderism on our children. They're using our children. They're using racial and ethnic minorities to advance an agenda that will eventually bring down America. That's, um, I mean, that's what they're doing. And I think that we can see it. We need to continue to stand up to it. Dr. Carol Swain, former professor at Vanderbilt and Princeton, newest book, The Adversity of Diversity. Go buy it and check out our website, Carol, C-A-R-O-L, Carol M. Swain, S-W-A-I-N, carolmswain.com. Dr. Swain, I hope we can talk again, ma'am. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Welcome back to Breitbart News Daily. Really exciting. A new member of the SiriusXM family, which she is great, and she knows everyone, so this is better for all of us that we get uh, to talk to all these awesome uh, people who are changing the world, especially when Trump wins and uh, we're running the show now. So we talked with Morgan Ortegas today. We have a new show on SiriusXM. She is the former Trump State Department spokesperson. Our very first show was this last Sunday and will be every Sunday from 11 to 1 Eastern on her first show. Listen, we just had a a guy engaged to a transgender. That's the quality people we have. She had a Qatari government spokesperson, Marco Rubio, Lindsey Graham, uh, former National Security Advisor Advisor Robert O'Brien and Ted Cruz on her first show. And it will only go up from here. Morgan Ortega's host of the Morgan Ortega show. Morgan, how are you? Thank you so much. Well, that's quite the intro. Well, I, I welcome, appreciate it. Welcome to the family. Welcome to the team. Thank you. It's great to be your colleague. I, uh, you know, we were joking because I travel so much. I live in Nashville, um, but I'm always traveling. And so we were joking that every Sunday the show would be instead of where in the world is Carmen San Diego, it would be where in the world is Morgan Ortega. Well, totally. So <laughs> we, we share a producer, which is awesome too. And, and Bill's like, oh yeah, she's doing her first show from uh, Doha. <laughs> I was like, I don't know. I don't know where Doha, Tennessee is. Like where I was it's like not a cutter. Cutter. No. Yeah. Well, I went there. I had it scheduled. I went there to interview Naturally. actually Senator Graham at the at the forum. And I gotta tell you, it was weird because it was one of these forums where traditionally there's a lot of American representation and there wasn't. Like the the Biden administration sent no one there. And so there were some former, you know, Republican Trump officials there. And so we were kind of like, well, this is weird. We're in the position of like explaining, you know, American policy 
sometimes that we don't even agree with, you know, to these mm-hmm. people. But listen, we did have some time to talk about the um, Israeli and American hostages, you know, and I think, and this is really what my show's about. I'm not going to lecture to anybody about, you know, my ideas on foreign policy. I want to have people on, and, and by the way, there's a big debate in the party about, you know, where, what America's place should be in the world. There's a big debate in both parties. I want to try to get Democrats on as well, too. I think that our listeners on Sirius are, are sophisticated, and on Sundays, you know, they can take a chance just to listen to something more long form, hear a debate. And, and let's not forget, by the way, you know, part of the reason I was in the Middle East, we still have Americans left behind. We have Americans left behind in Afghanistan, and we have at least Amer- eight Americans that are still held hostage by a terrorist group, by Hamas right now. And, of course, we had, you know, the numbers go back and forth. I think we're at 32 or 33 Americans that were killed on October 7th. And so, you know, uh, if anything, if the last three years have taught us anything, it's that foreign policy, national security. These issues do actually matter in, the, in who you choose as your president. Okay. I got a ton of questions, and I do kind of want to talk about some of the, the, the issues. But if you don't mind, I, I kind of want to talk more about you and, and just your life and oh, situation. Okay. How, how did you get to be a spokesperson? How did you get to the, the State Department? It was such a dream job for me, and I'm so, so grateful to um, President Trump and Mike Pompeo, who was the Secretary of State. Um, there wasn't like, I don't think there's like a clear path, you know, to getting there. For me, 9-11 happened when I was in college and I was studying to be an opera singer. And, you know, <laughs> spoiler alert for our audience, that did not, that path did not work out for me. Yeah, but um, but you, you, have to be, studying, you have to be like you know, a pretty good singer, right? Like I've never, uh, I, I've never aspired to that. So somehow you have to weave in some opera singing into your show one way or the other I, here. Right. Well, I love all forms of music. I think that's why I love living in Nashville. I, I happen to love country music, big fan of the highway and Sirius XM. But, but I listen to everything. And that's what's so cool, by the way, about Nashville. Like, the symphony is amazing. It's a world-class symphony, and there's all kinds of music in Nashville. So it's really just, like, the perfect city for me. But, yeah, so um, I was studying opera. It didn't work out. I'm still a very good patron. Um, but we, um, I, I ended up, you know, I have a twin sister, an identical twin sister, and we both got inspired to, to go into service. So, you know, fast forward, ended up working in the Bush administration, went to Iraq for a few months, ended up going into the intelligence community, went to Saudi Arabia, served at the embassy there for a few years, worked in intelligence matters. And then I came back to the U.S., did an MBA, blah, blah, blah. I met somebody named Bill Shine from Fox News at the time. And they were really building up Fox Business. And he said, well, why don't you come on television? This was like 2015. And I thought, well, I've never been on television. I don't know anything about it. And he said, well, you'll learn. So uh, I started going on Fox Business and then later Fox News, and some of the audience may may know me from there. And uh, and also during this time, I I commissioned into the Navy Reserve. So I'm I'm still an officer in the Navy, very proud to be in the Reserves. And my guess is, I've never asked President Trump this, but I really do need to ask, ask him. Uh, my guess is he and Mike Pompeo must have saw me on Fox and thought, all right, she knows what she's talking about. So I got a phone call from them, um, went and met Secretary Pompeo, and he offered me this job. But what was so cool about the job is he said, I don't want you to just be a person at the podium. I want you to travel the world with me. I want you to be in meetings with me. I want you to understand what I'm doing and, and really be able to speak for me and President Trump. And it was the coolest, coolest two years of my life. I mean, we were international probably half of the month. And being given the opportunity to go around the world and represent the United States of America, uh, especially for a secretary of state and a president who 
so firmly stood by the American people and, and stood up for what was best for the American people, um, and what was best, you know, what we thought was our, our very, very strong foreign policy. And I got to tell you, I was proud to represent America First foreign policy because we didn't get in new wars. Uh, we were tough with our enemies, right? We destroyed the physical caliphate of ISIS. Uh, he didn't hesitate to use the, the Moab, the bomb in Afghanistan. He went after Qasem Soleimani, went after the Chinese Communist Party in a way that no one else had done before. So we did all of that. We we had peace through strength. And, of course, we ended the administration on the Abraham Accords, the first peace deals between Israel and Arab states in 26 years. So I got to tell you, it is kind of, you know, it, it's beyond frustrating. It's, it's, it's really hard to watch what's going on in the Middle East today and know that we handed the Biden team literally handed them peace deals. And now you're seeing Americans, you know, probably a top 10 terrorist attack in terms of the number of Americans killed. Yeah. Uh, by the way, radio is way more fun than TV. You're going to have. I totally agree. No one's yelling at me to stop talking. <laughs> yeah. Wrap it up. Wrap it up. You got 10 seconds. You're right. There's none of that. Uh, it's way more casual. It's way more in depth. It's way more relational. Uh, you can actually have real conversations and not sound bites. It's a way, way better here in Radio Land than on TV Land. Um, we're talking with Morgan oh, Ortega's. I, I agree with you there. Yeah, you'll, you'll love it. Uh, Morgan Ortega's host of the new Morgan Ortega show right here on Sirius XM Patriots, Sundays, 11 to 1, or whatever time zone she happens to be in around the world. Uh, Pompeo's a great guy, right? Yeah, he's the best. He's, you know, one of the things that was. I, I wish I could um, have had the American people in the room for me for just one of the meetings because he was so tough and, and so strong. You know, there was times that like somebody on the other side might make like a quip or a joke about Trump and he wouldn't crack a smile. He was like, no, this is here who I'm rep here to represent. This is my boss. There's no space in between us. And, you know, there was times whenever we were in meetings and, and what the other country wanted conflicted what was, you know, with what was best for America and uh, and he stood very strong, very firm. Um, he was not a gentle secretary of state, right, of all of the things I could think of him. He was, you know, he, he probably wasn't the most diplomatic. He probably wasn't the most gentle. But I think that that's why he was effective. That's the kind of secretary of state that you need that's willing, that, that's willing to be tough, that's willing to say, you know what, I'm here to negotiate a deal. I'm here for American diplomacy, but I got a lot of military might backing me up if you guys don't want to make this deal. Yeah, every once in a while, I, I imagine. So I'm not good at confrontation. I'm not good at. Um, I just like avoid confrontation. So I got like if someone. Really? Yeah, I don't like it. Like, I'll give you an example. Uh, we got we we just moved we just moved to Nashville, so we had to buy some blinds. So we bought some blinds. Wait, you live in Nashville too? Yeah. Oh, we're gosh, down the street we get together. I totally. Know. We just we moved here six months ago. So. Oh, uh, awesome! Welcome. We, we put some blinds in the house, right? Got to put the blinds up. Right. I don't. I don't need blinds, but the wife says we need blinds. So, okay, we got blinds. Well, the people who uh, who bought the blinds, they screwed up, and I, oh, I like I had to call them yesterday. And I'm like, uh, like I, I don't. I feel bad. I don't want to call them. I feel bad calling them and saying they got the thing wrong. And uh, like I don't. Know. So like I'm terrible at that. I would be so bad if I met with the president of China. How <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like I can't handle the blind lady. I feel bad talking to the blind lady. Not blind. Not she's she can see the lady who sells blinds. So, like, what what are your nerves, and what is what is Pompeo and Trump's nerves when they go in and they talk to the president of China? Oh, so that those are always fascinating. You know, here's the interesting one: we met with the Russians 
quite a bit. So we got used to meeting with Lavrov, who was their foreign minister. Um, but I was with Pompeo one time in Sochi. Uh, and, and I'll tell you about China, too. But I, but I will tell you quickly, we were in Sochi, Russia, um, which is the only time I've ever been to Russia. And Sochi, you'll remember the Olympics were there. And um, and it, it was the when Pompeo, the president had asked President Trump had asked Pompeo to meet with Putin. And so this was like, I don't know, I feel like it's like, you know, meeting like Hitler or something. Right. Like, it's totally. not a, this is not a good dude. And, and by the way, this is that's that's the real work of diplomacy. You know, going and meeting with your friends and talking about trade or this, that's easy. You know, the hard work of diplomacy is when you have to go meet with people and talk with people that you don't agree with. So, um, yeah, the Putin meeting was like beyond bizarre, mostly because I, first of all, I shouldn't really say this, but I will. He looks like he's had the, the worst plastic surgery. Oh, is that right? Not good. Yeah. No weird. way. His face is, yeah, his, his face is like kind of wide, but. but he needs a new, he needs a new Botox, needs a new Botox guy or something? Well, it, well maybe, maybe he should just stop, right? <laughs> People <laughs> should just stop. But it was mostly, you know, he wasn't, it's like you think, you watch the TV and you think, well, what is it going to be like to meet all of these people? He's, a, is, you know, just a pretty transactional guy. You know, the Russians are pretty transactional. Mm. You know, they will, Lavrov, their foreign minister, he'll sort of opine and, and talk about the most ridiculous stuff. And then, you know, Pompeo would sort of challenge Lavrov and, uh, you know, they, they would sort of have a contest of wills and it would it would go back and forth. But, you know, for the most part, the Russians were like pushing just to see how far they could get you. You know, the Chinese, you, they're an interesting group because they they're, they're like they must be great poker players. They don't show all of their cards in a meeting, you know, very reserved um, at many times. And they are um, they enjoy talking for the sake of talking right uh, in terms of like sometimes for them just meeting is a win but you don't necessarily know like the the china's communist party and the leadership there it's so opaque right we saw the the foreign minister and the defense minister get canned right just in 2023 um and so you see this you, you see this stuff in china you it's hard to know who's up who's down and you gotta think you know you could be again the foreign minister somebody like really really senior and then, like a month later, we could be like, "Well, wait, he's gone, right?" Yeah, so you, wild. so it, the, it, it's, it's very like opaque, and and you got to know that unlike the U.S., I mean, listen, President, uh, excuse me, Secretary Pompeo used to always joke like, "Hey, I didn't get fired by tweet today," so I guess that was possible, <laughs> you know, the United States as well. But we didn't have to worry about being disappeared. And if you get yeah. attacked in China, you're also getting disappeared. Yeah. The, so the cultural differences between these nations is fascinating. So if you're traveling around the world and one day you're meeting with Russia and then the next China and then the next whatever, uh, they're all totally different. And the way they speak and what they value and shame-based or guilt-based, or you mentioned Russia is very transactional and uh, some maybe more open or closed, like to navigate that and to be able to know who I'm talking with and therefore how to speak to them. And also like, well, how does America, how do we, how do we do our foreign policy or how, how do we do our diplomacy? Clearly we do it a different way than other nations too. So we need to be aware of that as well. Are these things you guys are thinking about when you're meeting with these countries? Yeah, I, I, we definitely are. I mean, Pompeo, I said this before, so I'm stealing this from him, but I think it's the best way to sort of frame and think about uh, and think about how, if you're, you know, the secretary of state or, or anybody in administration, wh what's the frame? Like how do you decide whether to do policy X 
or say no to policy why, right? Like, how do you, what, what's the context of how you make these decisions? And Pompeo said there's a guiding framework for every administration. Ours was America first, right? We looked at every decision point and said, you know, what do we think that President Trump would say, this decision is best for the American people, right? Because the president can't be there to make every little decision. This is why he empowers people to work for him. And the Biden administration, you know, they're, they're, and I don't agree with this, but I do think that they're sort of the guiding theme, the thing that the framework that they work on is climate change. So every decision that they make, it they look at it through the context of facing climate change as an existential threat to the world. And so every decision they make, like, because you have to listen, foreign policy isn't black and white, right? You think it, a lot of people think it is. It's really not. There's shades of gray. There's times, you know, for example, this administration has to make the decision of, do we pound the Chinese on human rights and the fact that there's an ongoing genocide in Xinjiang, or do we leave that issue alone in order to get climate change concessions from them? It's not how I would do it, but that that's that, that's an example of real world trade off decisions that people in power have to make, and 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 they've made the trade off decision that you know cli- climate change is more important than human rights. That's really interesting. So uh, one of my guiding principles was uh, Thomas Sowell's: "There's no such thing as solutions, only trade offs." And you, you must have encountered that nonstop uh, yeah. in your job. So so what is what is the difference, or what what are the right up moments for strong moral clarity versus nuance or taking what you can get and stuff like that. Like, how do you think through that? Well, I, I, you just hit the nail on the head of what I think is the toughest. Um, I'll give you, I think Afghanistan is the best example that, that what you just asked is, is the hardest thing that we have to do. So, you know, if you look at president Trump, he talked about wanting to end America's longest wars and, and not to have a combat presence in um, Afghanistan. And so he tasked Secretary Pompeo with trying to negotiate with both the government of Afghanistan, led by Ashraf Ghani at the time, who, by the way, was just the worst. I mean, this is a guy who the minute things got hot and the Taliban got close, this was in 2021, you know, he got on a plane, took a blow to cash with him and left his people. Right. I mean, you know, what a disgusting human being. So we hate it. I got to tell you, we hate it. But real quick, not to interrupt, but maybe in their culture, that's totally expected and normal behavior. And of course, you do that. In our culture, that's shameful and like horrific and and horrible. But maybe in Afghan culture, that's totally understandable. And anyone would do that. Um, I don't know. You know, maybe I I know that the Afghans that I know now that had to flee the country are furious with Ghani for leaving. Right. Mm. I, I don't know in any culture is it good to abandon the ship. Yeah. Right. So, you know, anyway, so so that was so so you're sitting here negotiating, trying to get a deal between the Taliban and the government of Afghanistan. It's really hard stuff. Of course. Right. This is as hard as it gets. And we had to go to Doha, actually, um, to, you know, sign the agreement between uh, between the U.S. and the Taliban. And, um, and, and you know, it, it, it's tough because you think about the all of the people in Afghanistan. We spent 20 years there. You think about all of the young women that are there that have an education that didn't have one under the Taliban. And I, I can tell you unequivocally that even though President Trump desired uh, to get American forces out of a combat situation um, in Afghanistan, he never, ever would have left the way that President Biden left in August. He never would have left uh, people, billions of dollars of equipment. You know, when we lost, <clears throat> 
excuse me, when we lost those 13 brave young Americans on, uh, on, on that day in August of 2021, that was one of the lowest points for me after, you know, the Trump administration, because I just thought they didn't have to die. There is no way in hell that Mike Pompeo would have oversaw this type of withdrawal from Afghanistan. Mm. And, and, and that, well, and that what would what have was done? so hard for me. What would he have done like, well, if, if he was conf- if he was given this um, uh, order directed by his president? What would he have done? So it's a really tough order. You're right to draw down, but it, it's got to be conditions based. So if you start, what, what happened is months before August of 21, starting probably I'd have to look back, but probably starting at least by April or May of that year, you started to see the Taliban uh, making um, advancements not towards Kabul, but they, but in the regions. Uh, around Afghanistan and, and, and the provinces, and you started to see what they were doing. And, and the American intelligence community, uh, basically, I think we're turning a blind eye to it because a lot of people started saying, hey, wait a minute, guys, they're overrunning some of these provinces. They're going to march towards Kabul. So, so first of all, there was no, I, I think that there was no real plan, no thought. It was a lack of imagination. I don't think that anybody thought they thought that the Taliban might take over. They didn't think they would do it that quickly. So there was no real plan in place. Also, and I'm getting kind of in the weeds here, um, but just to, to explain to you, oh, we had some people that were in charge. Everybody forgets this. Do you know we had to repatriate 100,000 Americans from around the world, from countries around the world during COVID? We had like, you know, a couple months max to get 100,000 Americans from around the world home. Well, how did you do that? First of all, Pompeo had appointed uh, Brian Bulatow, who he had been in business with, uh, to be essentially this, the title is not COO, but just, you know, not to get in all the titles. But that's essentially what he did. Right. Brian was an operations guy. Um, and we elevated people that knew what they were doing. We elevated them to have a direct line to the secretary of state uh, to be able to uh, to be able to go right to the top if there was like a problem in getting all of these Americans home. Right. We, we removed all the bureaucracy. Well, what the Biden team did is, is anything that the orange man did was bad, right? There was no like, well, there was no evaluation of the policy. It was just sort of like, orange man did it. Well, this is bad. So um, they took the people that we had empowered and we have given given direct line of sight to the Secretary of State. They stuffed them back into the bureaucracy. So all of a sudden, when you have all of these Americans to get home from Afghanistan and, and things are happening in Russia, it is chaotic. Uh, you know, the bureaucracy is like fumbling right below the surface. Uh, they're not empowered to do the job. And then, of course, you get to the position. We never should have been in that position when um, uh, when the Taliban is weeks away, is marching towards Kabul. And we were doing nothing at that point. We started warning Americans to get out, but we were doing nothing. And I got to tell you, you know, the military leaders, go listen to Frank McKenzie, who was the head of CENTCOM at the time. Uh, some of his interviews, go listen to the military, you know, leaders that were in charge at the time. And they were, you know, furious because they felt like that they weren't empowered uh, at all. The State Department was supposed to be in the lead and the State Department, quite frankly, was just paralyzed. And our, our exit from Afghanistan, here's one of the big problems about our exit from Afghanistan is that guess how many people got fired for what happened? Um, yeah. Yep. Zero, right? Zero, zero people got fired. And so because of that, what have you seen? Well, you, you saw that happen seven months into the uh, Biden administration, that Kabul falls to the Taliban. Then just months later, 
they have another huge deterrence failure. Putin decides to invade Ukraine. We have deterred Putin from invading Ukraine. Didn't happen on our watch, right? Now you see this horrific terrorist attack where Hamas feels emboldened to attack Israel, to kill more more Jews uh, in any single day than, than any event since, since the Holocaust. You know, you see anti-Semitism erupting. You know, I, my family and I were Jewish. Um, thank God we live in Tennessee. Thank God we have an amazing governor, senators, Marsha Blackburn and Bill Haggerty, who I'm friends with and love. I mean, thank God that we have people who stick up for us. Um, because, you know, if, if, if you're a Jewish American in New York City or in Boston or Los Angeles, you can't feel very safe right now. I don't think mm-hmm. American Jews have ever felt as unsafe in America as they do in this moment. Yeah, and I remember and when so, Trump, was again, accused of, Trump was accused of being anti-Semitic. Remember that one? It's, I mean, it's beyond ridiculous. Like, <laughs> uh, yes. And, and anti-Semite really gets the Abraham Accords. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, so, so, the, so when you go into the nitty-gritty of Afghanistan, you know, again, and I really appreciate your time on the radio. This is not something that I often get the time to talk about on television. Um, but because, of, you know, little things like empowering the people within the bureaucracy to report directly to the Secretary of State and changing the way we respond to emergencies is, is something that Brian Bulletel did because, you know, he's an operations guy. He's a business guy. And you, of course, have the Democrats come in. Nobody has ever signed the front of the paycheck there, and they don't get it, and they just completely screwed up. And, and I do have to hammer this point home. Nobody on Biden's national security team was fired. No one even had the yeah. dignity to resign, yeah. right? Before I mean, or after. Yeah. I remember a time when military leaders and something like this happened would, didn't need to be fired, right? They would have the dignity to resign. No one did. Yeah, so you have amazing. no accountability for anybody on this national security team, and they keep screwing it up. And, and it's just, I just sort of feel like we are sitting ducks and region after region and theater after theater around the world waiting for bad stuff to happen to us. Yes. We're talking with Morgan Ortegas, host of the new Morgan Ortega show on uh, Patriot right here, Sundays from 11 to 1. Last question for you, Morgan. <clears throat> Morgan, I'll let you get on with your, with your life. Um, how would you describe how Donald Trump conducts his meetings with his cabinet members? Oh, I didn't sit in. Let's see. I, I would sit in. Um, I, I've been when President Trump was meeting uh, with, when Secretary Pompeo was meeting with Trump. I, I wasn't in any of the big, you know, cabinet-wide meetings, but I met with President Trump a ton, um, and I can tell you that he is, in a way, that's very refreshing. Um, first of all, he's very funny. I don't know if people like, quite realize this about him. I mean, there's a lot of laughter, you know, unless he's angry. But Hold most on. Of there's a <laughs> this lot is of interesting, laughter. Morgan, because I remember. I remember there was a, a critique against, I don't know if it was the Atlantic, but it was one of those people. And uh, they said, oh, Trump clearly has deep psychological problems because you never see him smile or laugh. And he has no sense really? of humor. Yeah, that was one of the analyses of, of that why Trump's a, a psychopath. Um, well, no, that's crazy. In fact, I think he's very funny. And there's a, he's normally has everybody cracking up and, and some of those meetings. He's also a pretty generous host, so you can sort of, um, it reminds me of, uh, um, and I try to be this way when I host, but, you know, he's always worried about who needs something to drink, who needs this, mm. who needs that. He's always very concerned about the details of people's lives, he'll ask people about it. He called me once when my dog died, and we talked about nothing else but my dog for five minutes, right? And I thought at some point he'd be like, okay, now on to the Middle East, <laughs> right? But no, we just talked about my dog. Uh, but I, I would say, you know, listen, he's a business guy, so it's refreshing. It's not like meeting 
um, it's not like meeting with, you know, a traditional politician. What's also really interesting, he will do this, and sometimes this would get leaked to the media that would drive me crazy. He will often ask to ask the most extreme questions um, because he is trying to test, uh, you know, the limits of what you know. Did you yes. think through this policy? So, and some people would say, Donald Trump wanted to do X. And I was like, well, wait a minute. I was in that meeting. That's not what he meant at all, right? He was trying to test the, the outer bounds of your policy, say something really extreme. And he would look and see, you know, how do you react to this really extreme question? And he knew it was extreme, but he really wanted to, he, he wanted to test and poke and prod each person and, and to prod the policy and say like, okay, well, are we doing it this way because we've always done it this way? Because that's not what my presidency is about. Oh, that's so brilliant. What a good insight. Uh, this first one popped in my head, and I don't know if this is a good example because maybe we should do this one. But I remember there was one outrage that uh, Donald Trump, can you believe Donald Trump said we should bomb the cartels in Mexico? <laughs> right? And you're like, is it, so would that, would that be an example of Trump like maybe saying, uh, hey, okay, why yes. don't we just bomb, right? And then the person be like, um, I don't know. That's such a great yeah. te- technique. Can he you think also, of another? I think he enjoyed getting the other person, like when he said something extreme, he sort of enjoyed getting them, you know, off their footing, you know, yes. and making them nervous. But it's a really good way to challenge the person briefing you and be like, do they know their stuff? Not only do they know their stuff, have they thought through every scenario? Like, yeah, actually, so we did think through that, right? It doesn't make sense to do it right now, but here's how we could do X. Yes. <clears throat> On the. Uh... Excuse me, on the off, getting people off their footing point. Uh, one of my favorite Trump clips is when he was talking to Larry King. It's a long time ago, back in the 80s. And he told Larry King, it was right at the beginning of the interview. He said, Larry King, you're, um, he said, Larry, your breath stinks. Your breath stinks. It's awful. You need a, you need a breath then. It's terrible. I can barely even stand next to you. <laughs> he did like this whole thing. And just to get Larry King like off his game. Like, oh, I don't know what, to, you know, like, what do you mean my breath stinks? Uh, so that's another <laughs> technique of his. Gosh, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> Sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Morgan, I can talk forever. Uh, let's definitely do it again. But if you could listen to Morgan forever, it's great. Every Sunday from 11 to 1 Eastern, right here at Sirius XM Patriot, the new Morgan Ortega show. Uh, Morgan, let's talk often. I'm grateful for you. Yeah, and I'll see you in Nashville, hopefully. We'll do it. Absolutely. Let's meet up. Thanks. Let's, All uh, right. Thank you. Morgan Ortega, 11 to 1, former Trump State Department spokesperson. Pretty good. American made I got American parts Thanks for listening to Breitbart News Daily. We have a busy day tomorrow. So Congressman Chip Roy is going to be here. We are talking with a senator, but I don't know if we're going to have time for him. So we may have to bump the senator. Uh, We'll figure that out uh, right when I'm done with this. And then uh, we also have Liz Collins. She is the documentarian behind the George Floyd documentary called The Fall of Minneapolis. So she's on at 7, Chip Roy at 8. We'll fit a senator in there as well. Tomorrow's show, Breitbart News Daily. Spread the word.